Hey there, folks. Welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Mellison IV. On today's episode, we're talking with Daniel Jordan. Daniel's a rapper out of the Bay Area who pioneered a stock called Vandal Funk. On here, we're talking about his influences that include Gil Scott Heron, Typo Negatives Peter Steele, Ishan the Unholy, and other subjects. On here, we take it to street level, so if you're offended by language, okay. What's the climate in Arizona? Like, how's it looking out there? Man, all right, Arizona is a, a straight-up red state. Like, a few years back, um, they they were legit about to pass this law, and they they still have it, like, on the ballots called a SB 1070, where if your skin is brown, basically it's the, the right to, to pull you over and violate your civil liberties without a warrant, without a cause, because this bill enacts that. And that's just the temperature of it out here. Like that's the mentality that people have. It's very like old school, good old boy Republican that, that run this state. And we were one of the first States, like during this whole uh, pandemic, you know, it's very like, they're very Trump support. They support Trump very much. So they were like, yeah, fuck masks. And you know, they, they just proceeded business as usual and we became like the leading state with covid what in june and july fuck yeah it got bad man i was wondering what was hayward california like growing up in man um hayward hayward's cool man like hayward's uh it's like an industrial kind of town it's it's um like just right south of oakland it's right next to oakland so it's basically oakland um it was just a, a, a working class um black and Hispanic kind of a small town in the Bay area, but it was, is very like real. Hayward was real. Like, you don't, you don't fuck around in Hayward. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just one of those spots. Yeah. You don't fuck around. Yeah. But nowadays it's, it's turning real white. So every time I go visit my family still lives in their neighborhood, like where I'm from, but like the surrounding areas, it's kind of a trip to see, man. Now there's like Starbucks and AMCs where there used to be like, my favorite Mexican restaurant, La Mexicana, don't exist no more. And it's like our our neighborhood landmarks are getting taken out and being put with like this corporate, you know, uh, just saccharine, very like you know, white vibe. Sounds a lot like Southeast D.C. actually, because all right, I'm from the border of Southeast D.C. I call the place parts unknown because nobody's ever fucking heard of it. When I was coming up, if you heard four gunshots, that means spring started. Yeah, 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 right. It's pretty fucking hardcore, right? But, you know, because I'm like right down, I've seen a couple of drive-bys. I don't know who did it, you know, but mm-hmm. I've seen shit happen, you know? And oh, yeah. bottom line is, when I was coming up, right, if you saw a guy sweaty without a shirt running, he saw something. Nowadays, yeah. same as a different guy, he has cardio. I see poodles there now. Like, the only <laughs> thing he had was a German, Rot- German Shepherd, Rottweiler, or Pitbull. Yeah. Place change. Hell, DC yeah. actually, you know. It was like shit. It it doesn't look like DC anymore, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, but still DC's been notorious for being like like murder capital many of the years. Oof, like, fuck yeah. I've always just pictured DC to be very like hood. Like just don't it, fuck around in DC. It know? used to be. Shit. Really? Well that's a good thing, I mean to an extent, but I mean Yeah. Culturally culturally if they're taking away your culture from you and replacing it with, you know, just strip malls and all that, then like, I don't know, man, that's not a good thing because like that, that's you take it back to the plantation era when they take people from their, their land, take away their culture and give them theirs. You see a, you see a parallel here? Absolutely. Hell, there was a thing here called don't mute DC. The reason why it even started is because, all right, there was this one, I forgot, it was like this one cell phone shop, and they play, like, our regional style, Go-Go, right? And yep. somebody came up saying, could you turn that down? I'm like, excuse Damn. the fuck out of me? And this is like some, it was some new neighbors. These weren't, yep. and they actually called up corporate and said, you know, you're, something about the noise ordinance, right? Next thing you know, it's literally a fucking trending topic on Twitter, don't mute DC. They had a whole ass concert, right, called Mochella. <laughs> Because DC is like those two, like okay, if I'm in Philadelphia, anything can be a fucking John, right? Um, yeah. 
down here, it's like, don't say Mo. Like, anything could be fucking Mo. Like, you well and Mo. Like, shit, Mo. Or Joe, yeah. what the fuck ever, right? They yeah. called him Mochella. It was like, and it was, the city came together. Even The region came together for that shit, you know? Well, it's unfortunate that, that you have to fight to keep your culture there that's been, like, ingrained in your area for... I mean, Gogo's been going on for the last sixty years. Yes. So, like, and now people are that aren't even from this area coming in, and they're like, basically, get off my lawn. <laughs> and that's cool. That, but you got it. That's the only way to, you know, you got to fight for it. Exactly. You got to do a Mochella every, every fucking couple months or whatever. Just keep that shit going. Totally. You know and. Go-Go in the D.C. area, it's always been controversial because, you know, it goes back to respectability, classism, because it goes down to Go-Go's, so I'll put it that way. It goes fucking down, you know? And yes, mm-hmm. people have been shot, they have been stabbed, they, you know, but it's, they were saying, it's because of the music. No, it's because them two motherfuckers had it out for each other. Well, you gotta understand. Whenever you put a group of people together, I mean, the, I don't know. This I just can only speak from my experiences. Um, there's always going to be a level of danger. Every everywhere, I've, every place I've ever gone, where there's large groups of people, there, that's just it comes with the territory because people inherently can't get along. It's just how it is. Like I've seen, I've been to parties that have been shot up. I've seen people shot in front of me. I've been shot at. Like. Eventually, you just become kind of numb to it, though. Oh, yeah. Um, where I live in Phoenix, at one point, was a nice area, but now it's just kind of turning into, I don't know, man, it's turning crazy, where, like, you know, on every corner now, there's, like, a crackhead trying to, like, you know, bum change off you. I've had to, uh, I've had to pull a gun on people trying to break into my car while I'm sitting in it. Like, this is just recently. This, like, over the last few months. Um go to sleep to the sound of gunshots. Damn. And this, this like is where like, I grew up. Yeah. And I mean, this is how it was in the Bay area. And uh, just, you were uh, accustomed to that. Now it's like, it feels like the world is, it's just bleeding over into all parts of the world. And, uh, you just have to watch your back no matter where you are. And that's what these uh, people that came in and pushed everyone out. That's what they're fearing. But, uh, you know, hey, there's no real sense of security. You always got to be on your ass. I don't care what color. You, just because your, your, your skin is the color white is not a, a free sense of security. You're not off the hook, man. This shit could come to you, too, you know? Exactly, you know? And this is the reality that we've been seeing our whole lives that they're now just dealing with, and they don't know how to handle it. But there's a lot of us that have... Uh, we're numb to this. It's just, that's all we know, you know? Unfortunately, my son is coming up in a world where, you know, he's, my son's innocent, man. Like, you know, he likes his video games. He ain't no thug. Like, he's just a normal kid. Yeah. Likes family guy. But he is used to seeing a crackhead on the block, maybe a gunshot going on. We don't know if it's a firework or a gunshot. The hood may never know. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just this is just real life alright so what got you into rap and what got you to punk well punk punk was the early days rap was alright so I started doing rap and punk around the same time um, punk was more my heart honestly like I was listening to a lot of punk records and hanging with punk rockers going to shows so we started our own like little garage band and I mean nothing really came of it but Having a band is tough, dude. Like, you should know. You're dealing with all these fucking egos, and people are late, and it's just a nightmare more often than it's not. So, while I'm sitting here trying to fucking lasso up my band, I'm also working on these other tracks in my room on my 8-track in my beat machine, and I'm, like, devoting more time to that. So I kind of led towards hip-hop because it was just easier to make. Like, you could, you don't need a band for it, and... I can't sing, you know, I wish I could. If I could sing, I'd just do R&B. <laughs> but, yeah, because I'm not a rapper in that sense. Like, I don't dress or look like or talk like a rapper. I don't, the first thing you see, like, it's not a rapper when you look at me. I'm just a musician. 
but I always kind of want to be like Prince in that sense, like where Prince could rap or Prince could do this or that, but it, it's all just a part of the same like shit. Like I want my music to be its own thing where it's not rap. It's, it's art. You know, you know when I first heard it, I was like, this isn't rap. It uses rap as a tool. I called it gutter funk. I called it gutter yeah. core. Yeah. Because it was, I was like calling it vandal funk. I like that. That was the other name too. I like that one better. You know, because that's an old one. Uh, yeah, we used to call that shit that because it's like that was the best way to describe it. Or like, it's, it's funk for vandals. You hear that gunshots going up? God damn! Yes, we fucking we in the war zone, man. And that's a nice area too. <laughs> shit, dude, I'm telling you, man. I'm from the Bay, man, where it's tough. But like, dude, oh, Arizona is no fucking joke, man. Nah, whatsoever. Nah, I've heard stories, you know. Yeah, no, man, it's it's a trip, but um, back back to what we were saying. Yeah, man, it was just trying to create something that, that was unique, its own. Like, I always wanted to have my own like section at the record stores. Uh, now they don't exist, but that was my ultimate dream, where I got my own section, like my own genre. It's just like here's rock, pop, fucking rap. Here's Daniel Jordan. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> shit like. I literally created like a whole style when I was doing the Sketch Malchus thing. I created this whole style like it was somewhere between like Nine Inch Nails and 36 Mafia called it Urban Industrial. There you go. Nice. Yeah. I mean that's that should be the dream of any musician to like create something that is yours. That when people hear that they're like oh that's him. Because being around like any local scene which I'm so not a part of these days but there was a time I was just hearing how they talk and it's so like trivial they're entertaining the most trivial ideas like oh we got to make a song that the the radios will like or well, we got to make a song the girls look up will like or whatever they're, they're thinking too much about other people it's like man fuck that make a song that you want to like and if they like it cool if they don't who gives a fuck just keep doing your thing man and trust me man if you're being real and making real shit, your follow your followers will grow. It just might take time, and you don't have the patience. What you need to do is just put it out there and just let it sit. Move on. Don't worry about it. Don't even look back. You think I go back and look at my YouTube views? No. After I drop that shit, I'm fucking like whatever. I don't care. <laughs> All right. I still can't go over that one song that you sent me by Funky Blue Velvet. Right. I still can't believe. Like Brother Lin Chung was on there, right? Yeah. I'm, so I was wondering, all right, did the Bay Area punk and scenes and hip hop scenes ever have like a kind of a convene? Was there like ever like dual bills or something like that? Or was it like. No. The closest thing you would get to even. All right, there's this legendary punk rock club in uh, the Bay Area called um, 924 Gilman Street. Yeah. And they had like a very, like, they had like a set of rules of like can and can't do is the but it, there was no crossover so this was just its own unique thing it was more of like an la thing is where they were getting that influence from like um you know like chili peppers they were that that whole sound that's an la thing in the bay area the closest thing you'd even get to that would be like operation ivy or rancid you know what i mean oh yeah like and that has, like, it's not rap, but if you listen to, like, the drum patterns of Ration Ivy, they're kind of more funk than punk. They really are. I noticed that. Like, you know, it's kind of funny you mention that because if you listen, like, Oi, the good stuff, not that Nazi shit, but, like, yeah. if you listen close to some of the Oi vocals, it sounded like they're rapping. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. You know? Yeah. And it, it, well, but the thing was, punk and rap are very similar in that sense because, all right. What's one of the requirements? You don't have to sing, you know? And most people that, that joined punk bands or started rap groups were, were people that really couldn't sing. Like, I can't fucking sing. Why do you think I rap? Like, you think, like, if I could sing, you think I'd be rapping right now? <laughs> I'd be singing my way into all, all the women's panties. <laughs> you know, for some reason, I can imagine you doing, like, almost like evil lounge music, but not in a Danzig way. Like, you'd be more serious yeah. about it. I did, well, I would play with that style back in the day. Like, when you're young, figuring out your styles. Like, like that anti-hit shit was, like, basically, like, me, like, learning to walk, if you will. Like, 
just when you're young and, and you have access to equipment, you want to just really test all your boundaries musically and see what what sticks and what doesn't. But I never wanted to make a sound like because especially being like, you know, growing up in like a local scene, you'd hear so many people talk of like what other people want to hear. They're like, oh, we want to make this sound because this sounds popular. Are we going to do this? Like I was always very anti that even before I realized I was a punk rock mentality. But um, you wanted to like, I wanted to just the boundaries and see to entertain myself really. That's, that's what that came from. But um, even to this day, man, like, I don't know, like whatever scene that I'm even like a part of, I, I've really tried to just, just fuck all that up so people can just take my name out of that because so many people are stuck on um, trying to be a part of something, trying to make something that will be a part of something. But I don't know, man. I've always like uh, appreciated the people that stood on their own, that like tried to step away from that and really stand on their own. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Like, you know, when I was coming up, actually, all right, the kind of stuff I was doing, actually, this is before the whole Afropunk thing. I still have... Mm-hmm it's a bittersweet thing it was like i put it this way when i was a part of afropunk it was paul Heyman's ecw the afropunk you see now this man's ecw yeah best way to put it but you know it was basically me a, a drt a dr202 a bass guitar or electric guitar and my like a fucking task cam uh my blue task cam and shit and fire and try to figure stuff out like i still have some it's weird because the stuff they call chill wave now i'm like or they call lo-fi now? No, that's called being yep. lonely in your bedroom. You know, right, what do they call it? Bedroom right. pop. That's not that's not a, like, a marketable genre when we, like when like people like us start that. Like, dude, Esham, myself, like there's there's a, a lot of like people that like we we kind of just like originated that style by necessity because we had no choice, and now it's like people are specifically trying to sound like that. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to be Esham so bad when I was a kid, but like I was too nice. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I always like more more so than his persona, his like his ethics. Like the when it came to making music, it was so punk rock. Very. And that's what that's what attracted me. To that and it was out of necessity. Like he had a Tascam eight track and and by himself in his room. And and what you're doing is you're using the tools that you have. And just, it doesn't matter how expensive they are. If you can, if you're good enough at your craft, you can make a fucking, you know, chicken salad out of chicken shit, if you will. I came up with Judgment Day Volume 1 and 2. In fact, it's a funny story. For years, I couldn't figure out the sample on Crib Death. For years. And I stumbled upon it by accident. So what? I, I forget the sample. Who's, who's the sample? Is that Ozzy that he sampled? No, it was 24-7 Spies, John Connolly's Theory. Oh, really? <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I literally stumbled upon there by accident because I found a video of 27 Spies, John Connolly's Theory, right? And I clicked mm-hmm. on it, and I hear a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Like, nice. I'm like, holy shit! Because for years, I don't know what the fuck it was. I always thought it was like, I was like, okay, it is somebody playing a mutated version of the of Purple Haze. That's got to be yeah. Slayer. That's got to be... I don't know. That's got to be fucking Ozzy. That's got to be something, right? <laughs> I had no idea it was them because I didn't know they can go that fucking hard. I had no idea. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and you'd be surprised. Once in a while, you just find some diamond like in the rough out of just some obscure-ass band that just made one song that had this unique sound to it. And next thing you know, boom. And like being... You know, I always felt guilty being like a, a sampler. Now that it's, now it's in chic. Now it's like cool. But like when I first started producing, man, I felt like a fucking like thief. You know, just robbing. You know, all this music. But it's, it's, it's not viewed thievery. as like a legit art form now, which yeah. I'm happy about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not. Here's the thing. I don't think sampling is thievery if you give credit or you're like a student of the game. Like, okay, yeah. like I'm still trying to figure out. Remember like Beanie Siegel's version of Judgment Day. Yeah, Jesus. That freaked me the fuck out because I'm like, okay, does somebody have a copy of Judgment Day over there, or it's like a sheer weird coincidence? Yeah, you never know. Like, and that was the one thing too, especially being a part of that whole uh, that 
label, man. Like we always very have, have much this uh, um, underdog mentality of like everyone's a thief. But over time, you're like, who who knows? Like, but if it was the case, I wouldn't be surprised either way. You know, um, I feel like, and I hate to say it, I hate to be that weird fucking guy now, but I feel like my style now is getting stolen by new artists. And I, I never thought that that would happen. I was like, I'm too obscure. Like, no one's going to fucking know who I am. You'd be surprised, and you know? I, I continue to get surprised, and every day I'm getting surprised. Like, how many people, like, I live a very, like, normal, down-to-earth, regular life. And I think I do that. I do that just because I don't. I never was able one one that was able to handle like a lot of attention. I was just very to myself. So like I have my little circle of people, and I just focus on that. But I think as the years are going by, I'm starting to get really surprised on how many people this has actually reached worldwide. Shit, you'd be shocked. Like you know, I remember you talking about Tom McDonald. You know, and I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. For some weird reason, I would not be surprised. You know, I wouldn't either. And it turns out, like you know, the the more I looked into it, we have like a lot of mutual friends. Like he's worked with people that I've worked with, like that I've like done shows with. Like we have a lot of the same friends. And I was like, there's got to be some crossover here. But even so, in the moment, I was like, man, fuck this guy. And I'm like, whatever. If if I think he's a bitch, but like. It is what it is, man. You, just, me, and everybody both, buddy. I'll put it out. Right. But uh, he is, he's, he's culturally appropriating oh, totally. like a motherfucker. You know. Um, but more a... than that, he's actually just straight up stealing like yes. song titles from, from me, for example. Yes. He's, you know, like in song concepts. Um, I didn't even know about this guy, man. Like, like his video he's got this, some song called like they're trying to kill me yeah. or whatever. This came up as a commercial in a video that I was just going to watch. Like he paid like for the advertising and space, you know, to put his whole music video as an ad before your YouTube video starts. You know what I mean? How lame can you get? And that's how I saw this. And I'm like watching this cause I didn't hit skip. And I'm like, I'm listening to the lyrics. I'm like, wait a second. This sounds really familiar. Yes. <laughs> like I made this song 10 years ago. <laughs> all right when i hear your music i hear like a lot of peter Steele, prince and a bit of gil scott heron and a little bit of danzig too but who are your biggest influences though i mean shit those are big four of them i mean are you trying to get me to choose out of the four or just keep going keep going because i feel i feel like i'm just barely scratching the surface on there yeah yeah well th that's that's all like at face value those are the influences it's like okay i could see that but um I'm really into, of course, like I like uh, American rock and roll from like the 60s and 70s. Uh, I'm a really big fan of Bruce Springsteen. I'm a really big fan of Bob Seger. I really like Leonard Cohen. Now, these guys, I, I pulled at them because the way they structure their songs, as far as songwriting goes, they're all very well at piecing together a song just from your creative thought. So I changed my whole writing scheme, especially um, around the Kill by Love album, to really just kind of write in the same reflective kind of uh, way that a Bruce Springsteen or a, a Bob Seger would do. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, totally. Like kind of introspective kind of stuff. Yeah. Like that. Absolutely. And uh, those two guys were like the two main guys. They, they just took that whole market of doing that introspective shit and just working it pimping it the fuck out because like it became their gimmick if you will and um taking that to a more like hip-hop uh sort of genre it's very possible you you just have to be able to get introspective with it and it seems like that's not really that's more of a tough sell to today's you know culture than it would have been you know a little while back True, but that's what the cool thing about it is like these are the albums that become hidden gems and shit. Like, yeah. damn, dude was on was on to something even beforehand, you know. All right, but, but Peter Steele, let let me talk about him a little bit because I don't think I've talked much about him like in any interviews. Um, no, you you mentioned Prince and Bad Brains more. Yeah, but, like so, like Typo Negative's music was always kind of around, you know. I was familiar with like 
the the hits that they'd have, like, you know, um, Black Number One or I Don't Want to Be Me, you know, like the shit that if you've ever, if you're not a Typo Negative fan, you probably heard a couple of their songs, you know. That was me for, you know, the majority of my life. Until, like, over the last two years, I was going through a lot of uh, problems with um, my ex and then eventually just cutting that off. And their music, I really started gravitating towards it because a lot of their concepts are the shit that I'm saying on, on my past albums. Like, the same kind of just, like, all right, he owned that whole... You know, you can be uh, a good-looking man. You can uh, have women attracted to you and still be completely depressed. Depresses the day as long and hates yourself and be insecure. And he he gave a voice to those people that are just like, man, I don't I don't necessarily take pride in the title that people give me. They call me like Mr. Walking Depression, you know. Which, if they really knew me, that's not me. But in, in my music, I guess. There's a there's a point to that, um, but I felt like Peter still was he made it okay, where you could be macho in a hard form of music that's very in your face, very raw, but also be very sensitive and be vulnerable and talk about how he truly feels without putting on some bullshit facade tough guy macho act. He already is a tough guy. He'll fuck you up, and he knows that. So he wants to be true, be sensitive, and be real, and, and I took inspiration from that, meaning like, you know, it's no less gangster if you're talking about your feelings in a creative way, it doesn't have to be emo either, it's just like, hey man, this is my diary right here, I'm just being honest with myself, uh, that's the dark dark night of the soul, man, it's when you look within yourself during these stages of depression, and finding a way to give a creative outlet for it, and they call them messengers, people that are going through these stages in their life, they become messengers for what they experienced. So that's all this is for me. The, the Dark Night of the Soul, the reason I, I named my album that, well, it's this um, phenomenon. Have you heard of this? No, fill me in, though. Everyone talks about it. Uh, Bernard Michael Beckwith... Um, all you know, the people that came up with the secret and all that—it's this whole process we go through, especially through our thirties, where after we've been uh, married and divorced, or we end up alone, we kind of go through this like existential crisis, where you're looking for answers, and, and life is just giving you adversity, pain. It's getting you to question your your faith, and you feel like. You know, these times will never end. You're just stuck in this rut, and, and, and it's just this non-stop day to day of just being depressed and sick. And what it is, a lot of it is taking the energy of the world. It's being an empath and, and just really feeling the energy of the world personally, on a personal level, and it just kind of taking control over you. But there is a way out of it. That's the part that I'm learning. But it's through being creative, being a messenger, and just speaking your piece, your experience, in whatever way you can do it. And by doing that, you're, you're giving. It's all about giving, not taking. You know, changing your relationships. Say, like, in my next relationship, I want a woman that knows how to cook, or I want a woman that uh, has sex with me X amount times a day, or whatever that, you know, you're looking for in a woman. You have to change it to... I want to give a woman this. I want to help a woman be successful. I want to give this of myself to a person. It's all about giving love instead of taking it. Yeah, it's kind of zen. Yeah, totally. It's all you about know, that. It takes out. It's like it takes away from the ego. You know, instead of I want, it's because that's one of the biggest problems when you say I want. Though, that's when to put the ego and everything. Yeah. You know, I didn't know it was actually a term for that, but I do see a parallel between you and Peter Steele now. I noticed your albums have a very cinematic quality to them. Like, you use film samples and shit. Like, you ever thought about going to film? Yeah, man. I, I, I would really, like, that's my, that's my goal. My my artistic brain just kind of goes in the different directions outside of music. Like, I, you can only express, like, yourself musically so much to where you want to kind of do it visually or, you know, like, tell a story. And, I mean, I've just been on this crazy, like, just David Lynch kick, this, you know, like... 
a 24 too. like i've just been really you know just getting into like just more art house and i've always been into that but it seems like it's at a it, it's like at a renaissance right now so now's the perfect time for like weirdos with ideas can actually you know bring them to life and 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 actually there's an audience for it so eventually man that would be my dream but i don't think we're quite there yet that's going to take some time but if that ever happens we can go back to this conversation and talk about like hey that was where that idea was germinating <laughs> plant the fucking seed that's all i can but say i i was working on this movie this mini movie and um fuck man it's gonna take a lot longer than i thought it would uh, <laughs> i really want to get that shit done but covid fucked that all up man it did What's your creative process when creating stuff? Do you like immerse yourself in your influences? Does this come to you like, does it feel like something's whispering to you and you just write stuff down? Like, what is that? I'm just... It always comes to me. Even with the influences, like, they come to me at the, the right times. Everything, man, I'm just like steering the ship that's already being filled with all this creativity. I just kind of sit back and let time handle it. My albums make themselves in a way. Like, I could go fucking two weeks without making a song and then i'll go in there and just knock out a bunch you you catch it when it's hot you ride the wave when it's you know when the waves are going up and down you ride the wave but my creative process personally it's all about visualization and i visualize my project fucking months years before it's actually a, a finished product and I, I create everything in my head first and putting it on audio recording is just more like the afterthought of it. Of when you're when you're listening to one of my albums or purchasing it, what you're actually purchasing is real estate inside of my head that's been swimming there for years now. My interpretation of the world is what you're purchasing. So I have to be out in the world, living and existing, and focusing on the relationships I have with people. And these become the basis of my material. And the writing part, it's all just given to me, man. All of it. Writing's so easy when I'm in that mode. Like, nothing's ever forced. It just, you know. But when I do work on my writing, I never really work on it without a beat playing. So, like, I'll be right. I'll be listening to, um, say, Diana Ross with The Temptations. I'm going to make you love me. I'm just listening to it, and I like the vibe they, they, they created in it. Like, they caught that vibe where you feel that, like, you know, I'm going to make you love me. Yes, I will. You know, it's basically a person that's um, giving this other person the reasons of why they should be with them. Okay, so I'm listening to this. I'm like, I like that idea. They just created this idea. Now, maybe I could take that same idea and spin it my own direction. You know, and boom, I have a song. <laughs> That's pretty so, dope, you know? Yeah, it is how it works a lot of times. Like, Bruce Springsteen might say something like a cool little line, and I want to take that cool little line he said and really expand it and make a whole song about it, you know? Totally. That sounds similar to my process, you know? Like, with me, I'm remembering what happened. It feels like that movie, I forgot what it's called, but it's about a guy that lost his memory, right? But before yeah. he lost his memory, he left a bunch of clues, so he's kind of working backwards. Like, Memento. I think it was that. But it was weird because back in 2012 when I was writing songs, writing lyrics, right? It always felt weird. Like there's something whispering in my right ear to just like write this down. Yeah. It's hard to explain actually. So I'm just like writing this down. Like it's almost like I'm dictating for something else. But yeah. I was wondering, there was another incident that inspired this upcoming project. Do you feel, do you, do you want to share about that or rather kind of avoid that? Um, which incident? Well, there was an incident you mentioned to me that kind of inspired the upcoming project, you know, just some shit that went down, you know? So I was wondering oh. if you want to talk about that or not, or is it still kind of a sore spot? No, no, like, this is going to be the basis of, you know, this whole project. So in October, I got involved in a head-on collision. Um, I was at a complete stop at a red light, and a cat ran the red light, and to avoid getting hit by the oncoming traffic, ran right into me going about between 30 and 40 miles an hour. So I had a car just slam into me going about, you know, that fast at that speed. And it was um, very, very traumatizing, very shocking. Um, 
I was full of adrenaline when it happened, so I didn't really know I was hurt at the time. But as the days went by, I started just noticing a lot of my cognitive functions were a little compromised. Um, vision, especially besides, you know, the external injuries like neck, back pain, you know, my arm got burned up. Um, the most the most damning one out of it was the concussion. So I got a CAT scan done, and they were able to find that I had a severe co concussion. Now, like, you know, that shit kind of scared me because, um, you know, I think of, like, Chris Benoit or Junior Seau and, and Daniel Bryan. They've had to, like, lose their careers. Well, Chris Benoit is a different story, but lose their <laughs> lives. Yeah. Lose their lives and careers over concussions. And, you know, 20... 30 years ago, we really had no uh, background on this, and now we're starting to learn a lot more. So that puts me in a, a unique, unique state because it's a very hot subject. So I was working with a lot of like concussion uh, doctors and therapists and stuff like that just to figure out what's going on with me. And man, this shit was tough, dude. My whole world got like thrown basically in a blender, like my mind. Because, like, uh, I'm always dizzy. I'm very sensitive to light. Um, I don't even like being outside when it's light. I always have to have sunglasses. And my memory is just terrible. Like, I could tell you something and forget what I even told you, you know, five minutes later. It reminds me of the movie Mulholland um, Drive, where the chick gets hit head on. Just like that. Same situation. And she has amnesia. And there's this scene where she's, like, crying. And the girl asked her, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't know who I am. And she's like, what? It says on your name and your... No, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I almost sample that shit, too. But, um, yeah, man, that's how it feels. Like, you know, um, to this day, I still deal with it, man. Like, everything just seems, like, very dizzy and foggy, no matter where I look all the time. Like, I'm high on drugs or something. It's fucking weird. But, um... Yeah, it was, man. I mean, hey, I don't regret nothing, man. It is what it is because even in the dark night of the soul, man, the the most the most important thing we can have is suffering because suffering really will put our lives into perspective and give us an understanding of ourselves. So that's kind of where it's been, like just uh, having this understanding of it all and understanding, hey, even if I'm not 100%, I can still do good things and creative things, and my life will still be good and successful, but I just have to work a little harder, you know? Totally, you know, I've always admired that about you. You have this, res you have this resilience to you, you know? Like, I keep on thinking about, like, okay, you, you have always resilience to you, you know? Like, you never just suffered, and, like, you never been the woe is me type, you know? You yeah. might get it out and everything, but... There's always been something about you, like, okay, like, I, whenever I mention, like, you know, okay, this is going to sound weird, like, it's two different things, but, okay, the one, the Daniel Jordan I've known about and heard about, like, it's the same dude that was, like, you know, it's, like, you know, be on stage and everything, like, is it true that you coincidentally got hit by a car while you were performing, right? There's a, there's a rumor, it never got, hap that never happened, that was a, yeah, it was a big rumor. <laughs> Um, Viper Room, um, L.A. Uh, I was doing my performance, and a car was coming down the street on Sunset Boulevard, and I'm like in the middle of the street performing, and I and I didn't realize the car was coming, and I had to dive back onto the concrete. But oh, that's that story. The the story turns into like I got hit, you know, because you know how people talk, and. At the Viper Room, they still tell that story to this day. I don't even think they know who they're talking about, but it's become like an urban legend over there. <laughs> I've kind of low-key, you know, kind of get the urban legend going, too, because I tell people, about, like, yeah, one of my boys got hit by a car one time when they are performing, and they didn't stop They didn't stop rapping without a without a beat to stop going, you know? So, yeah. my bad. But No, nah, is... it's all good, but that's, how, that's like the game of telephone, man. Like, telephone, tell a wrestler. You know, when something happens, that shit turns into something else. And that's the beauty of it, because rumors keep a artist persona very intriguing. 
you're always going to this development and growth like you never stop at a certain place like i remember yeah. years ago you were talking about like how at one point you felt like gg allen but you realize that guy's dead i'm like what am yeah. i doing here so then you realize you rather more one more in the andy kaufman kind of way that's what i'm trying to remember but i always thought that was a really interesting parallel yeah yeah man there was a time too like where i, I really was kind of like i mean yeah i'll never top gg no one will um topping him's death but um i was just trying to compete with with his rumors i wanted to at least have my shows almost as crazy as his or you know a third of as crazy as crazy as his could be never quite got there but my shows did get fucking crazy but you know i i like that that idea of danger when i was young though nowadays like uh, i'm a grown man now if gg became a grown man would he still be like butt naked throwing shit at people i don't know hopefully not I think so i really think he would have went to other art forms but might have basically calmed down what if the yeah what if it, he went 180 and became this on like public image limit or something like that maybe like i would i i don't think he he could go public image limited because he didn't have quite the the political or intelligence in that sense to make that kind of music. Not as much as, I mean, John Lydon was an extremely intelligent person. Um, I think he could go more in the like outlaw country kind of. That was the other thing too. Like this, I can see that happening. Like I can see him doing some shows with Hank three easy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think if you gave Gigi like an acoustic guitar and just, you know, a bottle of whiskey, I think he'd rock his shit, but it'd be more like more slow down, stripped down kind of thing. And I think he could have had a successful post career doing that. Oh, totally. I would have seen it. Shit. Even though he wasn't really that talented, but like, I, I do like his solo shit that he did. Like Carmelita fucking, you know, um, watch me kill the Boston girl. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> it sounded good to me. Son of evil. You know? That was my fucking song right there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I believe like he still had a lot more like his one of his last albums was the the murder junkies and that was to me his best album so he had more to give it's unfortunate but he went out the way he wanted to like that motherfucker just like peter still like i don't feel sad for peter still because he he got what he wanted he wanted to die he, like every song's about how much he wants to die so it's like now you're dead you got what you wanted I don't feel bad for you. Maybe I feel bad for me as a fan that you're not here. I like uh, how you put that. That kind of reminds yeah. me. Okay, Arizona, right? Hmm. You ever heard a story how De- Typo Negative whooped the Deftones' ass? No, but they, I'm not surprised. They, but they'll whoop, they'll whoop ass. It's big motherfuckers. Oh, yeah. I sent the article because I'm like this. Well, you said earlier, why don't you try to stay more on track? But all right, because why don't you get more to production? I'm just curious. I, that's how I started out from the beginning. Um, I, from day one, like my whole greatest anti-hits, I produced that whole thing myself. I Back in the day when I started, it was still the 90s, man. Um, I didn't know any producers, and I really wanted to be a musician because I was always writing. And I was like, I want to turn these writings into songs. I really got the bug for it, and it took over my whole life. So I had to go to the music shop and basically like on a layaway plan get um, my first eight track recorder and my first uh, digital or beat machine, my first groove box, which was a M- uh, MC 505 Roland. Nice. Which was like, Ishan was using that for like the Nottish shit in the nineties. So it, it really had all those dope sounds and like those presets that you hear like, Oh, I heard this shit on Nottis. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it was pretty cool. And um, I made like the whole Jesus cock album with the 505 i'd say that's technically the first album we did um before that it was just random demos but um i i'd be, always be performing i performed up until or producing i produced all my own beats up until the stranger where i, I still produced half of it but that was the first time i worked with any other producers which was uh isham and blockhead and by getting with rlp and doing that album with them they wanted to bring other producers in the mix and i was all for it because like by that time i got tired of my own beats you know like i've been making my beats for the last seven years i'm like yes i'd like to get with some 
producers with fresh minds other than my own, and let's work on some shit. So by doing that on the Stranger album, working with other producers, I, I started to like that better. And then I carried that on into Killed by Love, where I worked with just one producer. Bad Mind was his name. And um, But you got to understand, like, I'm a producer. Um, the people I was working with were more like beat makers in that sense. Like, There's Bad a major Mind, difference. Yeah, major difference. Now, I'd come to Bad Mind with all of my ideas, and he would help construct the beat around all of my ideas. It wasn't just like, hey, Bad Mind, let me check out your bunch of beats and pick one. No, we, we created, there was only one beat that he, that he made prior to us doing that album that I picked. Um, I only picked one beat from him. It was uh, never as good as the first time. He made that beat before he even knew me, um, that instrumental. And I really liked the instrumental, so I was like, yeah, let me get that one. And I made never as good as the first time. But every other song, we made those beats together, top to bottom. So, but I gave him the credit as producer, but in actuality, we both made them together. But with someone, you know, with, who's a producer like that, having that credit's important for them. You know, it's more more important for them than it is for me because this is my album. I'm going to get all the credit. So, uh, I wanted him to get some love and get some shine, and maybe potential customers because they enjoyed my album. But the thing is, that that's that's the only fallback with when you're a producer and you say, oh, I produced Daniel Jordan's album, and then you got a new guy that comes around like, well, I, I want, since he produced Daniel Jordan's album, I want uh, him to produce mine. It doesn't come, in, it doesn't come out the same. Like, but I thought he, he did all this. Oh, he must have fell off. And then, no, it's no. It's, you, he, he produced that album with me. So if you wanted an album like that, you would have to get me and him. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally. You know, but... It's just a little sidetrack, but no um, problem. That's the, that, that's the cool shit, you know. Yeah, after that, uh, uh, the last till death to his part one, the last one, um, it was the same situation, but it was with my man DJ Ghost, who lives out here with me, and um, he had this MPC, and we we were making the beats together, just like Killed by Love, and um, it, that inspired me to buy my own MPC because I was like, you know what, fuck it, like. DJ Ghost is a man. I love producing with him, but if, if this is my career, I need to I need to be the one beginning to end doing this shit, not relying on anyone. You know. I understood. There's always been the and, DIY ethic you've had. You know. Yeah. I was always dug that about you. Once I got an MPC again, because I used to have one way back in the day, but I just fucking took to that thing like a fish to water, like a ninja with that shit, and I started making all these beats that were like better than any of the beats that I've been making with other producers. You know, just blowing them out the water. And I was like, sonically, and just the way this new album sounds with all my own production on it, it sounds better than anything I could have bought from anyone else. So I'm like, fuck it. I'll just keep making my own beats from here on out, you know? Yeah, because you know what you want, though. Yeah, exactly. You know what you want. And if you have the skill as a beat maker and you know what you want, it's a dangerous combo. Because, like, I've been a beat maker for fucking 20 years. I've been a producer as long, too. And when you can do both, boom, dude, you'd be like making fucking albums that sound like Kanye's albums, you know? There you go. Both Gemini's, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's actually a big influence as far as, like, his production style. I really like the way he pulls together samples and just, like, visual conceptualizes his uh, albums through his crazy-ass mind, you know? Oh, yeah, I've always seen, like, a parallel between... Some of the antics of HR and Kanye West, though, just reminds me of them sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about HR's antics. I'm more of just like a fan of the music, but he seems crazy. I got to show you the movie, um, Finding Joseph I. It's amazing. I'll put it that way. Okay. From my understanding, you basically told Kevin to go fuck himself, right? Yeah. All right, tell us more about that because I, was, I always thought the store was pretty cool. Yeah, man. Like, all right, so I didn't tell him personally, like... I told his man who, who like, all right, so I was being managed by um, the chick on the Kid Rock album, um, Devil Without a Cause. It goes like, she calls on the phone. It's like, I hope, you're, I hope your dick falls off. Be out there fucking bitches. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, that girl. Yes. Carmen. Carmen, she lives in Arizona. And 
she was mutual friends of mine, great person. She's actually still a great friend of mine, but she was in the music industry. So she pulled together all her connections because she dated Kid Rock for years. Like during that album, they were dating. Like they lived together for fuck, like I don't know, five years uh, during his whole underground shit when he was trying to, you know, get on. But um, she had friends down with the whole like um, Kid Rock, uh, whatever his label is, Top Dog, you know. And they set me up to get a deal with Universal, like my own deal, which would be through them. But um, I, I went and had the meeting with them in L.A. And the guy, the guy was kind of a douche. But um, he's like, this is the contract. We're going to do straight distri uh, digital distribution for you. I'm like, this is 2010. I'm like, straight digital distribution, man. Like, I want my CDs in stores. It's like, yeah, we're moving out of that shit. And uh, you get 3% of, you know, your contract, you get 3% of your royalties. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm independent. I get 100% already. Like, I'm working on the album The Stranger right now with um, Esham, and they, they basically heard uh, the rough copy of the, the Stranger before we released it. Because I was kind of holding the album, album hostage at that time, too. <laughs> I didn't want to put it out with anyone. But um, they wanted to sign me. They liked The Stranger, and they wanted to sign it. And I told them no. And Kid Rock and his people, they weren't too happy about that. They thought I was kind of a prick. And, I mean, I guess. So, I mean, if you go out and do a favor for someone and they turn it down and tell you to fuck off, I guess that's not the best way to make friends. From what end of becoming a Kid Rock, I think he does the bullet. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what would I have done? Uh, I, would I have had a you know maybe one minor hit like Kid Rock, and next thing you know, I'm hanging out with Kid Rock and his whole fucking MAGA shit, and I gotta act like I care about that? Like, no, that's the industry. They're gonna make you have to act like and do shit you don't want to do, and I can't live that way, man. If I'm into something, I'm really into it. If I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I'm into it. And that's that's 99% of the industry, pretending you're into shit you're not. And that shit is so phony to me that I was like, dude, I'm not one of these people. I'm just not. I'm sorry. It's not me. I got to go home. You know what would have happened, home. right? You would. I mean, I could imagine. You would have became the half Romanian, half Mexican Uncle Cracker. Right. They would have done some shit like that. <laughs> that's what would have happened. They would have right. done that, I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. I yeah, just get a strong feeling about that, you know? Totally. I mean, I don't even think it was, like, Kid Rock's label that I was going to be on. They just got me a deal with uh, with Universal. But the deal, was, and he would have gotten a cut from it, basically. Like, a finder's fee? Like, he would have owned part of my career by me getting this deal, you know? The fuck? But I don't think he wanted to, like, deal with me. He's like, I can, I can get him signed, but you he's not going to be my artist. dodged a bullet. I'm telling you. Yeah. But well, that makes even then, I, dod I think I dodged a bullet regardless because, like, dog, I lived with this band in the Bay Area called Insolence back in 2005 when I was making, like, my Twilight album. I was making it in that house. Uh, they were signed on Maverick, Madonna's label. Their first album had a minor hit called Poison Well. Uh, this is my life, this is my hell, straight take a journey in the poison well. That shit was like on this movie with fucking Robert Redford and Sylvester Stallone and whatever. All right, time for the second album. They got this their second album all finished. Shit is sounding dope. Fucking Maverick, who's owned by Warner Brothers, they're like, yeah, we don't want to put it out. They're like, what? Yeah, nah, we're going a different direction. I mean, we're, we're not, it's like rap rock reggae isn't really in now. So they spent the last five years of their deal just trying to get out of their contract. While they couldn't release any new music, they're fucked. <laughs> and I saw that happening with me. If they don't like you, they'll just shelf your fucking album, and now you're in purgatory. Now you can't do anything. And once, once you get out, no one cares anymore. Sounds like what happened with Frank Zappa back in the 70s. It was on that Ooh. Baby Snakes movie. He was talking about, it was, he was doing this on Taste and Beer, right? And he was talking about, he was like, told well, hell, it's like, I've seen it. I've been through it. Remember, I signed the Warner Brothers for eight fucking years. Yeah. I'm hearing the same story about Warner Brothers. 
<laughs> yeah, dude, they'll, they'll just straight put you on the shelf. But there's so many artists you've never heard of that got deals and just got stuck on the shelf. Like, it's fucked up. Hey, how'd, you, how'd you find out about eShop? Um, that was through Murder Dog Magazine, which is out in the Bay Area. <clears throat> they had, that, that's a magazine that came out of the Bay, and they would have eShop in there fucking every month. You know, I think Scott Beta was, like, running Murder Dog with uh, Black Dog Bone, and um, the, Scott Beta was more from the Midwest, so he was bringing, like, Midwest artists onto the magazine. And I was getting exposed to him through that magazine and reading a lot about him. And he had distribution to the West Coast. Like, there was a lot of stores, like Mom and Pop Shops would have all the Esham albums. So I was just reading that magazine and just checking out the record stores because I'd always be in the record stores back in the day. It was like my second home. And um, I, I, I think the first um, Esham album I got, I got um, Nodis, uh Life After Death, and I got a um, closed casket. And this was like probably around like 97. Yeah. So like right around that time. And I've, I love the music. It reminded me of like Brother Lynchon, which is more North Cal where I'm from, and X-rated. And just throughout all the years, man, I really liked him because I, I, I looked at him as like the underdog. And I really wanted him to succeed because I felt like his music really stood up and could hold up against anyone else's at that time, you know? Same here. That's what I dug about it, too, because I felt like the kinship that I felt was because this guy's making his own music. And, you know, when I was coming up, it wasn't always cool to be a black guy to, like, rock, right? But I'm like, yeah. this guy was like, this guy's going harder than DMX. This guy was, like, the precursor to, like, DMX and Marilyn Manson. And I'm like, yeah. this guy's fucking amazing. And it's a little... And he scared the crap out of people too, like, because yeah, I would yeah. find like his stuff, like you know, but that was the weirdest thing about it. It's like the kind of stuff his stuff was was almost like gangster rap, right? But it was, it was something about it that made it his own. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, I mean, it was just hard hardcore hip hop, man. He called yeah. it heavy mental, like, but it was just, it was very like just almost like the Peter Steele of fucking rap, you know, talking about shit that people are afraid to talk about. Totally. And. I just really enjoyed the music, man. I liked the beats. I thought I thought the whole just package was dope. I was like, this is a dope artist. But there was always something missing with his his whole persona that couldn't get him over the you know hump. He just got so close to it, and maybe it was his own self sabotage. I don't know. But I always rooted for him because he was the underdog. But you know, finally came to a point where he's like, you know, this isn't going to be ever be mainstream. But maybe we can, you know have a, a solid cult following and unfortunately like i think he's been looked over grossly over the last like 10 years very much so you like, know what always... there was a time 10 years ago he, he was still regarded as like a factor in the underground now it's like he's not being mentioned at all and i'm not saying that to dog him it's just the, the truth like people are they're not really giving it up to him which they should yeah and that always pissed me off because i'm like Cause I dig, cause when I was over on com, right, you know, like I would be checking out like some, like one of the members have some college radio show and everything, and they mentioned the one guy, it's like, is even a fan out in DC? That was me, you know, and yeah. like, uh, cause I felt like, cause the kind of stuff was talking about, like what Detroit was like, I'm like, this sounds a lot like Southeast DC, it sounds like a lot of places. And what fascinated me enough was like, okay, it felt like everybody was doing the same thing at the same time, but a different variant. Like down in Houston, you had Ghetto Boys, right? In Memphis, you had 3-6 Mafia. Detroit, of course, Esham. Um, shit, okay, in the West Coast, you had Insane Poetry, and um, he just mentioned him, uh, Brother Lynch Hung, and guys like yep. that. And I guess New York, Grave Digs, even though he hated the horrorcore thing. And I get it, because it's kind of like how Motorhead, right? It's like yeah. Lemmy said, they don't play metal, we play rock and roll. Whereas I wish yeah. I had to compare him to, but... You know, Lemmy felt more kinship with punk guys and more. He even played bass with the Damned. He didn't feel the same way about Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. It's like, I know we're both British and we wear leather and stuff, but that's we're not doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I always noticed that about them, you know. Yeah, I think nowadays he's trying to sp- spread more unity. I just don't think like the audience is just there as much as they used to be. You know, like he did some stuff with Gangster Nip. He did some stuff with Necro. Which is cool. But oh, I just, Necro, I forgot about him because even he's gone to some changes too. Like you know, 
Yeah. And also like DJ Bless as well, you know, or Sutter Kane, you know. Because mm-hmm. Sutter Kane remind me a lot of Ishan, but he used way more metalcore samples, you know. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I mean, I'm a big fan of him, and um, me and him, like, we still plan on working on a bunch of stuff together because he's a big fan of mine too. It's just he's always so fucking busy. and Yeah, he is I'm a not, workhorse. I'm, yeah, and he's so busy with his shit going on. I'm not going to wait for a person. Like, I'll just do it myself and just put it out, you know what I mean? Totally. And, uh, yeah, it is what it is. It's just a time in his life, but he'll hit me up every once in a while. Like, Hey man, if you still want to do that, I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. But I kind of learned my lesson in that regard with him. Like we, we, t- we had a few great conversations and our heads were all in the right spot. But when it came time to act on it, it just like, you know, it didn't come to be and it's all good is what it is. Maybe it's not the right time, but I think, um, I'm a big fan of his work. I really wanted him to mix and master my album. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, though. Eh, it's possible. He did do me a solid, though. He gave me all his fucking kits that he uses to produce with. Nice. Like, I got all his shit, man. Like, he hooked me the fuck up. So, like, if anything, that shit, that's worth it alone. I've been producing my whole album off these fucking kits he gave me. Hey, be on the lookout for Daniel Jordan's new album, Dark Knight of Soul. It's a banger. It's coming out this winter. Peace.